That thing happened again that Daniel keeps mentioning whenever he preaches where we don't talk to the people that are picking the songs and then the songs that they pick are the perfect songs to lead right into what it is that we're talking about this morning. That first song, um, constant. What I, was, I was looking at my notes. I think I have the word constant like three times in the first like three sentences of my notes. So the fact that you picked that song is going to tie in, I think, perfectly with what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, we're going to end up in Hebrews 13, but I just wanted to start, as I was reading, I found one of those cross notes. If you don't ever look at your little cross references and just read some of the other verses that kind of say similar things to the things that you're reading right there, you're missing out on some really cool opportunities because it took me over to Revelation chapter 1. And I just want to read this little passage because I think that what it says is so powerful. you got to think, the Apostle John, they keep trying to kill him because he loves Jesus too much. They keep trying to figure out ways to get rid of this guy so they don't have to deal with him anymore. They put him on this island and Jesus reveals everything that's left to come to him. Basically says, here's the way this whole thing is going to work out. And, and John writes all of this vision down and he says, I'm going to... I'm going to write this out so that the church can know what it is that Jesus revealed to me. And, and he talks about who it was that gave him this vision. So I'm just going to read a quick section here from John chapter 1. This is verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's go ahead and pray real quick. God, as we're singing all of these attributes, who you are, right back to you. We're reminded that these are the things that you told us about yourself. God, you are so mighty and yet you have revealed yourself to us. You have, you've shown us who you are. And I pray that we would not miss the fact that we are being given an opportunity to have a relationship with the creator of everything. God, I pray that as we see, again, the magnitude of who your son is, as we, as we study about the significance of his consistency, yet again, I just pray that we would be awestruck, we would be, we would be stunned at the beauty of your son. I got, God, I just pray as we work through these last couple of weeks in the book of Hebrews that, that we would not miss out on more opportunities to continue to see your son elevated above everything else that we might think is important in our own lives. God, I pray that we would be pliable. God, that we would be changeable. 
And God, that you would change us as we continue to study in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, so in that passage that we just read, um, John is saying, I've been given a message by Jesus. This guy that I've been claiming all along, and what is the point that he's trying to drive home about who Jesus is? That this is the same Jesus who was here. This is the same Jesus who was at creation. This is the same Jesus who's going to continue to rule and reign forever. Jesus' role is not going to change. Jesus himself is not going to change. There is no aspect of his character that wavers. He is consistent. He's constant. Just like we were singing. He does not move. He is not shaken. He is the stability. If anything was ever going to be stable in an earthquake, and you're going to hold on to it, he's the one. We've talked about that. We live in a world that can be shaken. Things can be shaken, torn down, things can fall apart, things can be bad, things can be uncomfortable. But if we hold to Jesus, if we hold on to him, he is our security. He is the one that we are confident in. He is the one that we can feel the most safe and the most secure putting all of our hope, all of our trust in. The things that we hold on to here, the things that we love here, are the things that are going away. They're the things that we can't count on. They're the things that we can't rely on. They're the things that are going to waver. They're the things that are going to be untrustworthy. They're the things that we might put our hope in and they will fail us. But Jesus, He's saying, Jesus is the beginning the end. He doesn't change. We can trust Him. We can know that He is consistent and that we can rely on Him. And that, I think, is the key motivation behind what the author of Hebrews is going to talk about today in Hebrews chapter 13. So if you're not there, go ahead and start heading that direction. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read verses 7 through 19. This is it. We're like, we're like coming up on the end of this. We've been in here since what? April? We're finishing it up. We've got we got two more weeks left, so we need to cherish these two weeks while we have them because uh, I don't know that we knew what we were getting into when we started studying Hebrews. I don't think we realized that it was going to be as tough to teach through as it was, but it's been, it's been a challenge. But I think coming out of this and looking back across some of the major points the author has been talking about, we'll get to talk about that again in the next couple of weeks. This has been a really powerful book, I know for me, um, and I hope it has been. For you as well. So I think the key motivation here, and you'll see it when we get in here, is that Jesus is consistent. And that's going to influence why he's going to teach the things he's about to teach. Um, he's going to primarily be teaching you guys, right? Church members. This is focused at the church, though he's talking about leadership. So for me and for Daniel and for Dad, those the people who are in positions of leadership in the church, we're going to read this a little bit differently than you are. We're going to read it and kind of put it on ourselves and say, how is this supposed to affect me? How terrifying is what this is saying? You know, there's a couple of points in here like that. But, but again, it sounds like he's talking about some of what leaders are doing, but the, the primary emphasis, again, he's trying to encourage you all to, again, as we finished up in chapter 12, he's showing you what genuine worship is going to look like, right? Acceptable worship. He's given us a list, and now he's going to kind of dive deeper into one big idea here. Picking up in verse 7. So let's go ahead and read this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by fools which have not benefited from those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's go ahead and stop right there. So, if you kind of saw, he kind of bookends this whole discussion about the consistency of who Jesus is, and again, making the point that, that Jesus' sacrifice is better than the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. He's better than the rituals that the people are trying to hold on to. But he's bookending this with a discussion on leadership. And he's starting off with, remember your leaders. And there's a couple of different ways that you could think about this. He could be talking about the leaders that are right in front of them now. Don't forget your leaders. Imitate their way of life. Uh, um, follow them. See what they do and do accordingly. Do that. And I think that that's there. There's also a little bit in the language a hearkening back to the apostles who first brought them the gospel. Remember these people who were with Jesus, who walked with Him, who, who saw Him crucified, who saw Him raised, and were the first ones to bring the gospel out. Imitate their faith. What did their faith look like? They all got killed because they loved Jesus in spite of what their culture wanted them to think. They said, we're going to follow Jesus in spite of the risks. We're going to follow him into whatever dangers might accompany that faith. So imitate their faith. See that they were unshaken because they had been with Jesus. They had been with consistency they had been with stability and imitate that faith hopefully i think he's trying to say you're seeing that reflected in the lives of the people that are serving you now as your leaders and and, and we would constantly be praying in our meetings that that would continue, that would be us that we would be worth living lives worth imitation we want that we want to live consistent lives of faith but, but he's giving you the template for what that has looked like when it's worked out the best in the past. And that was, think back to the apostles. Think back to these guys who gave their lives, gave their everything, had their livelihood, right? I mean, think about Peter. He's in the boat fishing, and, he, and Jesus says, come on. And he just leaves everything and goes. Think back to those guys. Those are the ones whose lives we're supposed to be imitating. The people who are willing to give up everything they have, everything they know, everything they're skilled at, and just blindly follow Jesus. Just, just trust Him and go. That, that's the call that they're putting on them. So remember your leaders past and present. But what does it say they're doing? 
It says, those who spoke to you the Word of God. This is talking about doctrine. A lot of times, it's really easy, especially in a lot of churches now, to say, we don't want to get too distracted by the details of theology because we don't want to divide the church too much over meaningless things. So instead, we're just going to talk about the big picture. We're just going to talk about Jesus and, and, and love and, and service and, and evangelism and those sorts of things. But we're not going to get into the details of what it means when we read this one verse here in one of these epistles written by Paul. And we're not going to discuss how that affects who we are because that could be divisive and that could be something that might split the church here down the middle over an issue or whatever. So we don't want to talk about that. But I think what he's trying to say is, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you about doctrine, they were teaching clear doctrine. So I think we should know that that is an important piece of what it is that we're teaching. So, so if, if Daniel or I get up here and we start talking about something that seems really nitpicky or really specific, I think what he's saying is, listen to that because I value that. That's important. It's important the details that are in here because those are going to affect the way we live. Those are going to affect the way we worship or the way that we serve or the way that we speak or the things that we do or the way that we, that we divvy up our time, the way that we allot ourselves different opportunities. So it's important to understand the details of what's going on when we talk about these. It, it could be easy to just brush things off and say, that's a secondary issue. We don't want to talk about it because we don't want to we don't want to bug people. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to divide the church. But I think what he's saying here is doctrine matters. And it's going to affect the way that you live. And it's going to affect the way your leaders live. Because he says consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So, so they're teaching specific things out of this book. And those things are influencing their lives and you're supposed to pick up on what the details are of those things, and you're supposed to imitate them. You're supposed to let your lives be changed by solid biblical leadership. And I say that because that's the caveat that he's about to put in here, right? He's about to say, follow your leaders, basically, if they're good leaders. So you have to be able to figure out who's a legitimate person to follow, who is somebody that's driving me towards loving and knowing Jesus better, and who's somebody that is leading me astray or doesn't understand the whole picture or is, or is teaching me something that's going to be harmful to me in the future. Who's saying something maybe just a little bit easier to me to make me happy so that I'll keep coming or so that I'll like them a little bit better. Hopefully that's not the kind of person that you're looking for. You're hopefully not looking for the kind of person who's going to tell you what you want to hear, but instead tell you what the Bible says, because that's what we need to hear. Right? So we need to imitate their faith. And I think the big idea in that phrase is that we need to be pliable. We don't need to come here set so firmly in our ways that we aren't willing to let the Word of God change us. Right? We ought to come to church every week thinking, God, how are you going to make me more like your son today? Because if we come in here thinking there is nothing that I need to change, then we think that we are already like Jesus. Because the whole point of the Christian walk is that we are to become more and more like Jesus the more and more we grow in our knowledge of who he is and the more and more we are in community with him. 
So if at some point we think we don't need to change anymore, we're essentially thinking to ourselves, I have become like Jesus, there's nothing else for me to do. I'm there. Right, like, like check the box. We're good. We're good on the spiritual growth checklist. Done. And, and that's not what I think our hearts should be like as we come in and sit down in this place. I think it should be that we come in, sit down thinking, God, how am I not like your son? And how can you reveal an area of my life to me today that I need to change? What about me needs to be different? What about me needs to look better to you, needs to be more appealing to you. What is it that I'm doing? What am I holding on to too tightly and I'm unwilling to let go of that is keeping me from being more and more and more like your son? What is that security blanket thing that I still hold on to thinking I can, I can hold on to that and be okay? So we should be, so we should be moldable enough that if we're living under biblical leadership, and again, I say biblical leadership, people who are following this book and letting it define how they live their lives, we should want to change to be more like that leadership. We should want to imitate them. We should want to be a different person. This is one of those verses that is absolutely terrifying to me, right? Because basically what I'm saying is, I'm up here teaching you the Word of God, you be like me. And if I'm going to say that, that means I better be living in such a way that I am not leading you away from Jesus, but instead pointing you towards Jesus. So it is a terrifying call put on me, which is why I think you'll see at the end, he's going to, his big call is going to be, so pray for your leaders. And we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, so verse 8, he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think this is such a significant verse because I think this has been one of the biggest key themes through this whole book, and not the one that we started with when we first started teaching. We started with, uh, we're going we're gonna to say that our theme for this is going to be Jesus is better, and that is the theme. And we're going to stick with that, and I'm probably going to keep using that hashtag for years because I'm not good at change. right? I find something I like and I stick with it. But I think the biggest key theme that I keep seeing as I study is that, that Jesus doesn't change, Jesus is consistent, right? He's constant. We sang that. Everything about him is something worth holding on to. He's not going to be shaken. And so we can just say, why is this verse here? Is it just because he's transitioning into the next section? And yeah, that's probably part of it. But I think he's just reminding us. Jesus is the one thing that has not changed. That's the big point that he's been trying to drive home for this whole book. It's been the same ever since the beginning. Jesus has worked the same way. You get to God the same way ever since the beginning. So Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now he's going to kind of set up a big compare and contrast, something he's done throughout the whole book. He's going to do it one more time for us right before, right before he closes up the book. So we're going to go ahead and pick up here in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. I think that's why he talked about the consistency of Jesus in the verse before. He's saying Jesus doesn't change. So if you see something that's different from what Jesus says, that's wrong. Because Jesus isn't going to give them a different revelation. Jesus isn't going to give them something new. Something that's completely opposite of what he's taught before. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's not going to change. So, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Don't Get distracted when you see something that doesn't look like Jesus. 
Don't follow something that's not pointing towards pointing you towards exactly what Jesus would have said. If it's not what Jesus would I'm not going to make a what would Jesus do reference. If it's not, if it, okay, I am. It's not, if it's not what Jesus would do, it's wrong and you shouldn't follow it. Don't define yourselves by leaders who aren't pointing you toward exactly what Jesus revealed to us about himself and about how we should live. So if, if the person that you're following is not lining up with this book, don't follow them. That's what he's saying. Because Jesus doesn't change. So if the message changes... That's not the kind of leader he's talking about imitating. That's not the kind of leader he wants you to change your life to be more like. Because if you do that, then you're becoming somebody who is shaky, who is wavering, who isn't solid on what this book says. They're defining their lives by something that is going to die away when everything goes away. Right? It's going to be shaken. It's going to be rattled. It's going to waver when times get tough. So do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So, we're not strengthened by ritual acts, right? We've been saying this the whole time. We're strengthened by the grace of God. It's the grace of God that saves us, and that's how it's always been. And that's how it's always going to be. The things, there's nothing that we can do to attain our salvation. Our salvation is a work of God. He draws us to Himself. He makes us one of His own. So don't be led away by these people that are trying to tell you that there is something that you can do to earn God's favor. Don't be distracted by the people who are saying, I have a better solution. I have an easier solution. I have a solution that can fill you with confidence because you know you filled in every bubble on the check sheet. You know you've accomplished every task laid out before you so you know that you've earned the favor of God. Because that's not how it works. We don't, we don't earn the favor of God by going through a checklist. One of the things that a couple of the commentaries I was looking at this week talked about when it starts talking about, uh, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. If you've read a lot of Old Testament, you know that under the ceremony, under the law, there were a lot of these ceremonial meals that they would eat together. And they would all have different, different types of significance. They'd get together and they'd celebrate the exodus. They'd get together and they'd celebrate God's providing manna for them in the desert as they wanted. They'd get together and they'd eat a meal in remembrance of something that God did. And when Jesus came, he was now the focus of all of the church's attention, as he should be. And he was the one that we looked to. We didn't look back to Moses anymore. We talked about that when we, in the very beginning of Hebrews. We don't look back to Moses anymore. We don't look back to the manna and stuff. Those were a picture of God providing for his people the way that Jesus ultimately provided perfectly for his people. And, and what was happening around this time was that within Judaism, they were taking meals and they were saying, look, we can still offer you a meal that's going to earn the favor of God. Come have this ritualistic meal with us. Let's sit down and let's earn righteousness together, basically. And, and as we know, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jews who are being tempted to fall back into Judaism, right? He's trying to say, you don't want to fall back into this because this is what was broken before and this is what Jesus fixed. 
This was what was incomplete before, and this is what Jesus made whole. So, what he's saying is, don't be distracted by food. Don't be distracted by meals. Don't be distracted by actions that people are saying will help you earn the favor of God. That's not going to get it done. You will feel really good right now because you'll feel like you're doing something. But ultimately, you are leaving yourself apart from salvation because you are thinking, I can get it to God all on my own. So don't be distracted by the seemingly tangible thing that you could grab, the seemingly tangible thing that you could do that would make God like you. Don't be defined by things that you do. Be defined instead just by what He's already done. That's what He's saying. That's what He's saying. It's better for us to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Because those, have, those haven't benefited anybody. They think it does, but in the end, they're going to be left with nothing. It's not going to help them in the end. And then we get to verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. When I was reading this verse, I first read it, I was like, what is he trying to say with that? that just, A, I don't talk like that. I don't use those kinds of phrases in that way. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And I kept thinking about it, thinking about it, and I read a few things, and then it started to make sense. What he's saying here is that we serve Jesus. We get to celebrate who He is. Maybe through communion, maybe just through remembering the sacrifice that He made. We serve as the body of Christ. We are the church. And we get, we get to remember Him. We get to experience Jesus in a way that people who are still defining their lives based on actions and ritualistic meals don't get to. They're sitting there thinking, I'm going to earn my salvation by virtue of the way that I do this thing or I eat this meal. And what he's saying is, we have a meal that they don't even get to come to. We're in. We get to sit down and commune with Jesus. And they don't realize that they're missing out on this meal. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, those who are still holding on to the old way, who are perverting the old way, who are making the old way say something that it was never intended to say. We have, we have an opportunity to commune with God in a way that they will never understand. Because they're defining their lives by something that is ultimately going to leave them unfulfilled. So, so the food that we eat, right, to, to kind of pick up on his metaphor here, the food that we eat, um, the Word of God, Right, we, we've seen that a couple of times as we've read some of the some of the prophecy in the Old Testament, where he says, "Your word was like a scroll, and you gave it to me, and I ate it. Like I, I got the word of God in me, and it tasted so good. Like I loved your word after I got it in me." So, so we have we have a different kind of food that is ultimately more satisfying than any sort of physical food that these people think they can eat, and that's going to earn their favor with God. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. So, so we, we want to imitate the lives of people who are going to push us toward a food that can ultimately satisfy us, not give us some sort of food that's just going to waste away and leave us with nothing. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
Um, does anybody have Leviticus memorized? Does anybody know what we're talking about? What, does anybody have any idea which sacrifice it is that he's referring to here? Anybody want to take a guess? You get, you get like 16 brownie points if you can get it. Anybody? Anybody? Hmm? Like actual brownie points, not actual brownies. Sorry. I should be really specific. I don't have brownies. This is talking about the Day of Atonement. This is the big time of year when, when all of Israel would come together and they would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And, and many times with the sacrifices, the priests would get to get their meal from the leftover sacrifice. That was how the priest would get to eat that day because he would offer the sacrifice for the people and then what was left would be his meal. But this one was so revered, so important to God. He's saying, this is the one that's representing the sins of all my people. This is not for anyone. This is to be taken, carried outside of the city, symbolically carrying the sins of the people away from the city, away from them, and it's burned outside of the city, destroyed outside of the city. And that comes from, you can, you can read a little bit more about that. It's in Levitic, Leviticus chapter 16, if you're interested in doing a little bit more study about the Day of Atonement. And, that, and he's saying that because it's significant when he gets to verse 12. This is the point that he's trying to make. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So, so just as the sacrifice for all of the nation of Israel was taken outside the city to be destroyed, symbolically carrying their sins away, so too was Jesus taken outside of a city and there destroyed to take away the sins of not just Israel, but everyone. To make salvation available to all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And if that's not the thing that we're putting our hope in, then we're just putting our hope in a bowl of frosted mini-wheats. I don't know why frosted mini-wheats. But I'm hungry. Frosted mini-wheats all of a sudden sounded good. But if we're putting our hope in something just as simple as, I'm going to eat this meal and that's going to make God like me. I'm going to do this thing and that's going to make God like me. We've missed the point because the point was that Jesus was carried outside of Jerusalem, hung on a cross, and killed, murdered for our sins so that we could have a relationship with him. So that we could be brought into the family of God, so that we could have real communion with him. Not the kind of communion that the Jews of the Old Testament were used to where, where God sits in a room and he's hidden from the people and, and only occasionally is the priest able to step into his presence? We get the presence of God always, constantly, unwavering, because Jesus was carried outside of a city and killed for us. That's, that's what we put our hope in. Our hope is put in the actions of someone else, not in the actions that we may be taking on our own. Our hope is in what he did, not in what we could do. Let's keep moving. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So, 
here's where he starts to transition from this is the way it works to this is way, the way it should look in your life. This is what you should do with this. Because if it just stops at, I acknowledge that Jesus was carried outside of the city. He was taken away and killed for me. If it stops there, we've missed the point. The point is that we are supposed to go with him. He is carried outside of the city, symbolically taking our sin away from us. But at the same time, we go out to him, leaving the comfort of the camp, leaving the comfort of the city that we're in. Right, leaving the the way that we thought we could earn our salvation before, leaving the safety of our own actions or our own control, being willing to give up all of that and go outside and accept the reproach that Jesus accepted on our behalf as well. So we go out and we endure what He endured with Him. Right? That's the life that we're supposed to imitate, especially if we're looking back at the apostles, right? Because that's what they did. They saw Him killed. They continued to preach His name. They too were killed. They followed right along and it happened just the same for them. They, they, they took on His reproach. They went with Him and they lived that life alongside Him. So we are supposed to go outside the camp. What does it mean to go outside the camp? What is the camp representing here? The camp is representing everything that we thought we knew before. Everything that we thought made us safe before. Uh, our safety, our security, the things that we understand. Um, maybe our jobs. Maybe our relationships. Maybe the security of going inside our house at the end of the day, locking the doors and knowing that we're safe. We're willing now to give up on the idea of safety and structure and what we feel is consistency. Because, because what we're seeing is that the things that are inside the camp, the things that are inside the city, the things that, the things that we think keep us safe are not the constant things. They are not the rock-solid things. They are the things that are going to be shaken. They are the things that are going to go away. So we leave metaphorically speaking, we leave the city to go out and suffer with Jesus. We give up our safety, we give up our security to be with Him, to, to live a life and share experiences that He experienced. Because He was rejected, we also ought to be rejected. How better a life to live than to get to the end and say, I lived a life just like Jesus. Instead of saying, I hid back. I stayed back, I stayed safe. And ultimately, I was comfortable or I was safe or I protected myself. That's not what he's saying we should do. We should go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We'll move on. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And we've talked about this, right? We talked about this a couple months ago. This city that we live in is going to go away. The sit, this city being the world in which we live. Everything, everything here that we think is, is good or, or pleasing or something that we would want to hold on to, something that we would want to have for ourselves, is going away. And we should not define our lives by holding on to the things that are going to go away. We should define our lives by holding on to the one thing that we know is truly our hope, and that's Jesus. And the city that He promised, the city that He's building, the city He's going to create with His people come the end, is ultimately going to be more satisfying, more pleasing, 
safer and enduring than anything that we've ever experienced here. So we need to be looking at our lives. And we said this a couple months ago when we talked about this idea of the everlasting city that is to come. We need to be looking at our lives right now and saying, what are the things that I'm holding on to that are weighing me down, that are keeping me back? What are the things that I want to hold on to here inside the city instead of leaving this city, not being, not being defined by what is here, and instead being defined by my life and my walk with Jesus? What are the things that we need to let go of? What are the things that we need to get rid of? What, are the, what is the stuff that is holding us back? That might be a good question to ask in CG this week. What is holding me back? What is holding you back? And not just say what's holding you back and come up with kind of a surfacey answer about it. That, that kind of answers the question. But, but genuinely look each other in the eye and say, I don't want to give this up. I love this. And often I love this more than I love Jesus. What are those things that are in our lives? Those are the sorts of things that CGs are for, so that we can actually have genuine conversations about this sort of thing and actually feel the weight of what it is that we're talking about, so that we might be changed. Because, because if we're not willing to admit the places that we need to change, then we're not really being pliable, right? We're not really ready to be made into something that looks more and more like Jesus. We want to remain just like who we are. So we're defined by the world that is to come and not defined by the world that we live in now. 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to show, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Verse 16, we talked, we've talked a little bit about, especially when we were in the book of Acts, we talked a lot about living communally and, and meeting each other's needs and what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. Like this, this genuine idea that we help meet each other's needs, we take care of one another, the church takes care of the church so the church isn't lacking. But I, always, but I thought it was interesting when you put these two verses together because we think of, okay, be willing to sacrifice and give up what you have to meet the needs of others is compared directly with let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. So, so he's comparing our worship to the sacrifice that we think of when we talk about giving away the things that we have. Being, being free of the desire to hold on to our stuff or our money or our time. And he's, and he's said, so he's saying that the way we worship ought to be this, have the same kind of sacrificial heart, the same kind of attitude that we have when we're talking about meeting the needs of other people and giving up what we have. And, and, and that comparison really kind of struck forward with me because I'm thinking, what does sacrificial worship look like compared to the way I normally would worship? Is that, is that different? Do I usually come into worship, and I'm thinking right now specifically like the way we sing, the way that we celebrate who Jesus is when we're in here together. Do I have a sacrificial mindset when I do that, or am I just trying to sing? Am I just, am I just enjoying the music? How, how, am I, how am I living sacrificially like that? 
And I don't have a good answer for what sacrificial worship would look like. Um, I was just thinking about, I don't have a really good answer. So, again, this would be another good thing to talk about in your community group this week. Um, try to come up with some real answers for this. Um, how could our worship here at CRC be more sacrificial? How could, it, how could it come from a more sacrificial heart? How would that affect our worship? What, how would that change? What would our worship look like if we had a more sacrificial heart when we approached the way we worship here at CRC? I think that we could come up with a lot of different ideas. Like, like what is it that we're sacrificing? Is it that we're sacrificing our, our pride? We're giving up this, I wonder what people are going to think about if I decide to start jumping up and down. I'm wondering what people are going to think if I put my hands up. Oh, I don't want to block the view of the person sitting behind me from seeing the lyrics if I put my hands up. So, so I'm not going to do that. How would that be different? What are we sacrificing? Are we sacrificing... Our comfort, oh, I'd rather just stand right here. I don't want to move around. I don't, or I don't want to raise my hand. My arms might get tired. How might our worship look different if we approached worship with a sacrificial heart? What can I give up to celebrate who God is right now? What if that was our attitude? What, what, can, I, what can I let go of? What can I give up that would make my worship to God more genuine right now. So talk about that this week. See how you think that might affect our worship here, and then apply it to our worship here. Maybe I'll put a post up on the city saying, what did you guys come up with in your CDs this week? And we can talk about, we can get a little discussion going, saying... Well, here's how I think our worship could improve if we were approaching it with a more sacrificial heart instead of a heart that's just kind of showing up, singing, maybe even enjoying the music, but not, but not really being affected by it. Verse 17. Obey your leaders. All right, let's pray. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Okay, let's pray. <coughs> Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's terrifying, just so you know. That's absolutely ridiculously terrifying. As, they will, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you would think and I think we all kind of had this mindset when we came into planning this, what, two years ago? You would think, oh, we're going to be so young and new and small that we're going to be exempt from that. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You would think that, but that's not the case because, because we're all sinners. Sometimes we groan about each other in our meetings, I'm sure. I'm sure they, that, that Dad and Daniel groan about me all the time, probably. But we have not been exempt from difficult circumstances, even in our first couple of years here, dealing with various issues of people growing in their faith or not growing in their faith or struggling with some sort of sin, that sort of thing. And I think his heart here is that we need to remember that as leaders, we're responsible, again, so we need to live lives worthy of, worthy of imitation 
And we need to know who our people are, which is why membership is so important. Which, by the way, I'm really excited. Like in the last couple of weeks, like four or five people have turned in some membership papers and stuff. And that is so exciting because we're seeing that God is continuing, continuing to bring people here. There'd been kind of a dry spell where nobody had been joining for a while there. And now all of a sudden he's like, nope, nope, I've got some plans for you. We've got some people coming in. And this is going to be good for the life of the church. So, so it's important for us to know who our people are because we have to give an account for our people. So we have to know who the members of our church are so that we know who are the ones that we really have to make sure we're guarding their souls. Right? That's what he says. We're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So, so his charge to us is know who your people are and do what you have to do to point them towards Jesus because you're going to give an account for them. For you all, he's saying, don't, don't make your leaders' lives miserable. Right? That's what he's saying. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's my job and Daniel's job and dad's job and any, and any pastor of a church's job. It's our job to point you towards Jesus, to grow you in maturity and, and, and hopefully cause you to lead a life more reflective of your love for Jesus than you're reflective of your love for the world. That, that's, my, that's my job. And what he's saying here is, it's your job as members of the church, the way you respond to teaching and participate in the life of the church, specifically here, the way you go about that, the, the ease with which you make us able to continue in our job is reflective of how good a... Okay. Uh, I don't want to say this. It's reflective of your attitude of who Jesus is and the church that he has put you in, right? If you love Jesus, you're going to love his church, and you're going to love the people that he has put in charge of that church, or he's put in leadership of that church, and you're going to want to do everything you can to benefit the life of that church, right? You're going to genuinely care about the good that comes out of that church, and you're going to do whatever you can to make the work that God is calling that church to do happen. Right? You're not going to just show up and say, this is for me. You're going to show up and say, what can I do for you? Right? That's what he's saying. So how do you get to a point where you, your life says, everything in your life says, I want to do what I can to make the life of the elders at CRC joyful as they go about leading this church instead of painful. How do, how, do, how do I get to that point? And that's where he gets to verse 18. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So, I think he's saying, pray for your leaders. Pray for your church. Because, I don't know if you've noticed this in, in community group. Hopefully everybody's sharing Lots of prayer requests. They're talking about what God's doing in their life. And they're sharing with their struggles. The more you pray for somebody, the more you care for them. The more you are invested in the outcome of that prayer request. The more you are concerned for them or you are hoping to see God do something good in their lives. And I think that's why he, said, he goes to pray for us. Because he says, I want you to obey your leaders. I want you to submit to them. I want you to make their, their, their work joyful. I don't want you to to make their work more difficult because of the way that you conduct yourself within the church. So pray for them. 
Because I think he knows, if you are praying for your church, if you are praying for the mission of your church, if you're praying for the spiritual well-being of your pastors, if you're praying for their spiritual walk, their, their preparation, that if you're praying for the band, that they would, they would prepare well and be ready to play and, and sing good music and, 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 and all of this, if you're praying for those things all the time, you're going to genuinely want to invest yourself in helping make that work out. You're going to, God's going to give you a heart that is genuinely concerned for the life of the church. And you're going to want to participate more. You're going to want to help more. You're going to want to, you're going to, want to take part in, in whatever the mission is at the time for the church specifically. Because, because the more you pray, the more God's going to put it in your heart to see that stuff through. And you're going to be like, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. So, again, he wants you to submit to that leadership and he wants you to become a part of that and pray for them because they're pointing us to Jesus. Right? Your leadership should be pointing you to Jesus and he is the one who is... It's not just that he's consistent, right? It's not just that he was at creation. It's not just that he, he is currently ruling and reigning. It's not just that he's coming back. He's going to gather us all together. We're going to have a big party. It's not just that. It's not just that he's better than Moses or just that he's better than the sacrificial system. It's not just that, that the salvation that he offers is the only thing. It's that he's everything, right? Like he's the only thing that we should point to. Everything should be defined by who Jesus is and not by what makes us feel good or what makes us feel safe. It should be, it should be Jesus. A leader is only going to be a good leader if he's pointing, us to Jesus, pointing you to Jesus and not pointing you back to the camp, pointing you back to the city, pointing you back to the things that you should do to earn the favor of God. If any leader ever says, the only way that you can get, to get God's favor is if you're doing this, this, and this, and this, that's not a leader for you. If it's somebody whose life, actions, words point you to Jesus, that's who you should follow because Jesus is the only one ultimately who is satisfying and pleasing and able to save. Cool? Let's pray. So God, let us not be defined by the safety and security of the things that we know or the things that we think we can trust, the things that we tend to put our hope in, but let us be defined by the goodness and the power of your Son his willingness to give up everything, including his life, including his seat in heaven, to come down here to draw people to, to himself. And God, I just...
I pray that you would give us hearts that desire to see your work done. Hearts that desire to not hold on to the things of this world, to not be defined by the stuff that we have or the time that we've already committed to certain things, that we'd be willing to give up whatever it is that you may ask of us in order that we might run to Jesus, no matter what the cost. So God, I pray that you would give us a heart willing to give up everything, live sacrificially, right, so that we could so that we could have you. I pray that you would be the prize. That it wouldn't be some tangible thing here on earth that would be our goal, but that you would be our goal. So God, I just pray now that as we worship, as we give, as we take communion, that you would just be with us and be what we want. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to do response time. So, sing. I didn't give you a lot of great advice as to how to worship sacrificially because I'm still trying to figure that out myself. But think about the concept of giving up what you have, being willing to part with everything for the sake of Jesus, and take that heart attitude and apply it to our time as we sing. Apply it to giving Apply it to when you come up here and realize that Jesus gave everything for us as we come up to take communion. Think of those things. Have that on your heart as we worship now. Well, woe. Yeah, woe loud. Woe. Lead the woes. Okay. We have to concentrate on the 